are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about smoking cessation. Joining me is Dr. Brian Jensen, who's a primary care pediatrician also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a faculty member of the CHOP Policy Lab. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Jensen. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit about smoking cessation, and we know there is no safe level of exposure to secondhand smoke. Furthermore, secondhand smoke exposure can have significant and serious health effects on children. These include increased risk of acute respiratory infections, ear infections, asthma flares, and sudden infant death syndrome. Fortunately, exposure to secondhand smoke has decreased in recent years, likely due in part to a growing number of laws that do not allow smoking in public places. However, we also know that there are racial, income, and occupational differences in rates of smoking. During 2011 to 2012, two out of every five children aged 3 to 11, including 7 out of every 10 black children in the U.S. were exposed to secondhand smoke regularly. I'm talking today with Dr. Brian Jensen because he recently published a study in pediatrics that we're going to talk about that will help us understand more about smoking cessation and what we can do in primary care. So Dr. Jensen, can you tell us a little bit about the study that you published last year? Yeah, and what a great setup for, for this work. So before we dive into some of the research to frame about the larger effort, what we're trying to do is, through our use of uh, new technologies, help our pediatricians treat parents that smoke. And really the whole idea is help them quit. And the reason we focus on that is, when you take a step back, whenever I do these sort of talks and kind of educate uh, individuals about the harms of tobacco, I remind people about what a horrible product this is. This is the only product that when you use it as intended, it will kill half of its long-term users. The only legal product that's out there like that. Yeah. And it's addictive by design. And it has all these downstream effects. So when you start the conversation talking about the secondhand smoke exposure, that's what we see in our patients, that the, our children, our patients are exposed to secondhand smoke, and there's no safe level of that by their parents and caregivers. And our goal is to help those parents and caregivers quit smoking. Because when we do that, we have all these great downstream benefits. One, we nearly eliminate all that secondhand smoke that our patients would be exposed to. We also help that family now have money to spend on other things rather than tobacco. We increase the life expectancy of that parent by 10 years when we wow. help them quit smoking. And then I think something that's the most poignant part of this, and this is what fits well within our pediatric space, is that we help end that cycle of tobacco abuse. When you help a parent quit smoking, their child is, is significantly unlikely to become a smoker themselves. Mm -hmm. So what our research was focusing on is how to help pediatricians identify parent smokers and then use all the services that we have available in our armamentarium to help them quit. So a little more specifically, we can go into more of the details, is it was a, is a tool that we focused on to fit seamlessly into the workflow of our clinician colleagues to help them identify parents that smoke, ask them questions about them being interested in quitting, and then connecting them to additional resources. One, prescribing what's called nicotine replacement therapy, which is safe medications that are available over the counter but are needed to uh, help the prescription of them are needed to help for insurance coverage and motivate a parent, and then connect to other services out there that have been shown to help people quit, in this case to some resources at Penn. And um, the last thing I'll say before we can kind of talk more about is that 
this was a tool that uh, did even better than we anticipated. That there was a there was a strong feeling among our, our clinician colleagues they wanted to do the, the right thing in this space, and we were just kind of fitting this in to help them. We found that the majority of our clinicians use the tool at the majority of visits to ask about tobacco, ask about smoking, and then go on to treat them. Half of the parents that were smokers wanted some form of treatment. Mm-hmm. And then when we followed up with the parents, one quarter of them were using medications at one month follow-up in an attempt to quit. Mm-hmm. As a primary care clinician, you think that's, that's pretty good numbers yeah. to help motivate someone. And that, was leading to, that led to work in a study that we were lucky enough to get published in pediatrics to, to talk about this experience. Great. So that we can understand the scope of this problem, how commonly are Philadelphia children exposed to secondhand smoke? Yeah, it's, um, the first thing is we are, we are a, of the top cities in the United States, we have the highest secondhand smoke exposure and highest tobacco use. Mm. So in, in Philadelphia, 40 to 50% of children have biologically confirmed rates of secondhand smoke exposure. Wow. Yeah, it's almost half. Now, why is that? In nationally, about 16% of the adult population smokes. In Philadelphia, it's about 23%. Hmm. Then when you focus in on some of our more underserved areas, because tobacco is a strongly strong use in, in our most vulnerable populations, those who come from lower socioeconomic strata, those who have health issues, when you look at West Philly, Southwest Philly, and North Philly, and then some of the surrounding suburbs that connect there, we have rates of up to 40% of individuals who are smoking. Mm. And so when you have those high rates, children are the ones that get exposed. Right. A lot of times parents will tell us that although they are smokers, they only smoke outside. And we hear this a lot when we're getting a smoking history in clinic. And you, you mentioned uh, in your statistics, kids who have a biologically confirmed exposure to smoke. So do we need to still worry about these kids who uh, could be getting secondhand smoke exposure from a parent who says, I never smoke around my kids, I only smoke outside? Yeah, there's, there's two answers to that. First off, yes, the simple answer, because there's no safe level of secondhand smoke exposure. So that's what I think all our colleagues should kind of, uh, remember, that any exposure can lead to poor health outcomes. Now, when someone says that, that they, I only, they're almost getting defensive about, well, I don't expose my child. And I like to frame that to kind of use as a way to help with behavior change. What I try to remind myself when I'm wearing my clinician hat and then when I talk to my colleagues is that true behavior change happens in a place of non-judgment. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's an opening there to say, okay, they do acknowledge they smoke, but they don't expose their child. So what a great way, what you can frame back is that it's great that you're trying to protect your child. Let's come up with ways to help you quit, mm-hmm. to further reduce that risk. One of the best things you can do for your health and the health of your child is to quit smoking. How can I help? Right. And parents seem to be receptive to that because we're, again, framing this as a non-judgmental way. Mm-hmm. About 30 years ago, when people first started to recognize that pediatricians should be doing something in this space, there was the perception, it turned out to be a wrong perception, that if we brought up these issues, parents would feel stigmatized and not want to talk further about this. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, and this is where I, I'm lucky enough that my work kind of stands on these other shoulders in the space of, of, of really important researchers who identified not only do parents want us to ask about this, um, they expect us to ask about this, and they want help. Mm-hmm. Because many times these parents don't have their own adult healthcare provider, mm-hmm. and we're uniquely positioned to intervene mm-hmm. on their behalf. We talked in a prior podcast about another stigmatized issue about food insecurity and the best way to ask about that in a sensitive way. Mm-hmm. So this is very similar, uh, like you said, that we don't want to make parents defensive. So are there screening questions that are the best way to get a, a true answer back, but that are sensitive and non-judgmental? Yeah. So the, the, the first simple answer to your question is yes. And the question that seems to be the most evidence-based is to ask, 
Does your child live with or have a caregiver that smokes, uses tobacco, or uses electronic cigarettes? So that's the question that we want to be asking. Mm -hmm. I think we, the more nuanced answer to that too is we want to acknowledge that we, there's no perfect question that's going to capture everybody. When we look at research studies that have their pedi- uh, parents want to do well by their pediatricians too, and they want there's right. kind of they want to show that they're doing the right thing. So there may be reasons that they know, don't entirely disclose to us their behaviors, and they're lying. But that question seems to be the most open-ended way, and non-judgmental way of getting someone to open up. Mm-hmm. And then when they say yes, think about now they want to connect with you, and here's a great opportunity to help. Mm-hmm. And as pediatricians, how good are we at screening for secondhand smoke exposure? I mean, you've, you've mentioned that we should, and we know we should, but how often are we actually doing it? Yeah, the short answer is we, we've gotten better, and partly that's after the Meaningful Use Act, which a lot of us were frustrated with in, in primary care that got us to at least ask the simple question of, is there someone at home that smokes? Uh, based on our internal data at CHOP, we're getting above 70% of asking individuals about that. Uh, that's better than national rates, which is great, but there's a little more nuance there. So we have to make sure we're asking the right questions. We found out in our internal data that sometimes uh, people would ask the question, rather than the one that we just talked about, the more evidence-based, non-judgmental, was a question was, you don't smoke, do you? Or your child, doesn't, you're not exposing your child to secondhand smoke, are you? And I think we could right. kind of gauge from that that that's probably, someone may not be in the best position to answer that. Mm-hmm. So we're asking, which is great. Um, we have to make sure that we're doing it kind of in the right context in a non-judgmental way so we could be better. And uh, a lot of our other um, healthcare networks that don't have electronic health records seem to be not getting to those rates. So what I really say is now we're asking, now let's do the next thing and really help connect these parents to treatment and right. offer them treatment. Right. And those are the next big steps. Yeah, so on, the, on that note, some providers say that maybe they're less likely to screen because they feel powerless to solve the problem, mm-hmm. that they don't know what the next steps are. So after we get a positive screen, what can we do? Yeah, and that's where when, when my pediatrician colleagues or pediatrician colleagues bring that up, I say, actually, you are in a perfect position because parents look to you as the trusted healthcare advice source. Let me come back to that question because there was an interesting national campaign that was focused on helping people connect to resources. And it was called the Tips for Smokers. Mm-hmm. And what it was was a way to connect to all these great resources. They did a subset analysis, meaning they looked at parents who were smokers and they asked them, what was the most motivating thing for you? Which of our commercials helped motivate you the most? And what they said was actually, there's a great poignant story of a mother showing up the note from her child, um, a nine-year-old son, saying, Mommy, you promised me you're going to quit. Mm. And so what that parent was saying was that trying to do something for my child, man, really got me motivated. Right. And so we're the people who are in that context. So we're not powerless. In fact, we might even have more power than our adult colleagues because we mm-hmm. can leverage that to say, one of the best things you can do for your health and the health of your child is to right. quit um, by framing this as a way to help your child. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, parents are saying, okay, just saying in those ways can help motivate. But again, we want to go further. What you can do then is prescribe medication, again, medication that's safe over the counter, mm-hmm. and then connect to resources that are free and available to the individual user called the quit line. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's available throughout the country, and we have resources to easily connect to them. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of our, we're, we're, get back to your question is that, we are in a perfect position. We're not powerless. We can really help. Right. And the last thing I'll say is it's not just parents want our help and in many ways expect us. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that we start to find out in our research is that the feedback when we do these interventions for parents, they really like it. They really say, wow, this is great. I always, I always thought good of the clinic, 
But now this is great that they really care about my health. Mm -hmm. And we think, and we couldn't capture this, but we're getting this in some qualitative uh, reports that parents say, wow, I, I'm thinking more highly of the clinic now. Mm -hmm. What a great way that we're doing this one thing that can help the families. And maybe that can help downstream conversations around other things that are a little more complicated, a little more uh, difficult conversations. Yeah, it's definitely a more holistic approach, Yeah, which is nice. Yeah, I was going to say one of, one of the things that we're focused on is when you say holistic is recognizing that we're in a good spot to help families. Mm -hmm. um, we're focusing on tobacco work. One of the other things we're doing at Policy Lab, which is a, um, a, a researcher base there, is this whole service is around intergenerational care. Mm -hmm. When we talk about secondhand smoke exposure, it's not the child who's trying to get exposed to smoke. It's they're exposed by the parents. So we have to help the parent quit to really help protect the child. When we think about things that we're doing in primary care, asking about postpartum depression screening. We know right. that helping the parents, helping the baby. So we're the position, we're perfectly positioned to help the family. And that's what we're doing in Policy Lab, focusing on some of these, what we're calling intergenerational services that we provide. Right, I love that. I love that Policy Lab is focusing on that because we know it's one of the best and most challenging parts of pediatrics that yeah. the child doesn't exist in the bubble. They're in this whole family. So looking at the whole family and how we as pediatricians can help advocate for our patients' families is important. And I think, and, and to follow up with that, I think in this kind of, where we go in this new healthcare space, it shows that we have that, we have, it's a unique thing that we offer. Mm -hmm. Healthcare is going to change over the next 15, 20 years, certainly over the next couple of months. What's, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't need to go into that conversation on the federal level. But we, um, there's some evidence that, for example, conversations that happen in the adult space can't perfectly translate to our space. And that's we need to think more about this. What I mean mm -hmm. in tobacco space, um, the conversations, simple advice to help someone quit smoking seems to be very effective in the adult world. It can bump up some of the rates of uh, quit rates. Mm -hmm. It doesn't quite translate like that in pediatrics because maybe we need a little more evidence about how to frame things around the child. Mm -hmm. But that's the fun thing about our research is we can come up with ways of empowering our, mm -hmm. our pediatricians, our colleagues, to come up with the good expressions, good ways of, of starting some of these conversations. Mm -hmm. Great. Now you mentioned a few times the over-the-counter nicotine replacement therapy. And I've heard from some of my colleagues that, hey, I'm a pediatrician, I don't mm -hmm. feel comfortable writing a prescription for an adult. What if they have this disease? What if they have that disease? Do I have to ask these questions? Mm -hmm. So in, in starting this research project, did you consider that? And what is your advice to people who want to prescribe these but are maybe a little bit hesitant? Uh, yes, we definitely consider and we have some good advice in this space. So the first thing that remind everyone is that tobacco still I mean, will kill you, the continued mm -hmm. use. So when you're dealing with that, anything to the alternative is going to be safer in that right. context. Why we emphasize the importance of prescribing nicotine replacement therapy, and we're not talking about other medications, psychopharmatherapy like bupropion, Zyban, or Vrenicline, Chantix, mm -hmm. is that these things are uh, replacing nicotine and um, really helpful in getting people off nicotine. They're safe, they're available over the counter. Why that prescription is so important is twofold. One, insurance coverage. Right. So when we prescribe something for the parent, it is covered by insurance and we've tested that. We called Rite Aid and CVS and interact with parents and confirm that, okay, yeah, we needed the prescription. Mm -hmm. Two, um, it's motivating. You now have that prescription from the pediatrician saying, okay, okay, the pediatrician talked with me about this, I should probably go fill this out. Yeah. And, and the whole important thing about this behavior change is all these different things that we combine together, those iterative improvements. Now, the last thing about what else do I need to ask about? There are no absolute contraindications for using nicotine replacement therapy. Great. Our adult colleagues who are experts in the space, pulmonologists, point out when we've, they've come and, and helped kind of educate and train our pediatricians that when they have patients who have a heart attack, congestive heart failure, admitted to the intensive cardiac unit at HUP, a 
kind of at, at uh, our adult colleague hospital within our system, they start using nicotine replacement therapy on them mm-hmm. right away. There are relative contraindications that I would encourage people to ask about is make sure that the mom is not pregnant that you're offering mm-hmm. because that should you know, be someone who's more comfortable in that space prescribing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can ask about, did they recently have a heart attack in two weeks? Okay. Not typically our patient population, right? Most of our patients that we're treating, and this is why it's so important for us to be in this spot, the parents that we're helping are in their 20s to 50s. They tend, not, they tend to be otherwise healthy mm-hmm. and they don't regularly go to a healthcare provider. So that's why we're perfectly positioned to go a little further and offer something in this space. Mm-hmm. Great. In your study, did you have any data on how successful pediatricians were in helping the parents actually quit smoking? Yeah, we actually got to clinical impact. And so we surveyed parents at two to four week follow up. And we found that so of the parents that wanted help, half of them um, were interested in, in, in quitting. They said that 90% of them received advice and were offered nicotine replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up taking a prescription about 60% of the time. And then of those parents, a quarter of them were using medication to help them quit. We didn't, we didn't have enough kind of money and time to look at ultimate quit rates, mm-hmm. but those are important steps. We know that people that make an attempt trying to use these medications are gonna go on to successfully quit. Great. So it's great. Yeah. We, we have good data show we're going in the right direction. You mentioned before electronic cigarettes. Do we need to worry about vapors from e-cigarettes the same way we do about uh, you know, regular cigarettes? Yeah, the short answer to that question is yes. And let me ask kind of a, a longer, uh, give a longer answer to that. Sure. So e-cigarettes now, and I, this is another kind of uh, area where I'm happy to kind of, uh, expert in this space um, and talk about this regularly. E-cigarettes have now become the number one tobacco product used among adolescents and young adults. Mm-hmm. Quickly, over the last five years, they really kind of skyrocketed. 16% of teenagers have tried and used e-cigarettes over the last month. Mm-hmm. That compares to 9% of uh, traditional cigarettes. Wow. Uh, there's no, just like there's no safe level of secondhand smoke exposure, we're easily seeing the same thing. What happened was e-cigarette companies are saying, this is safe water vapor. It's not, it is not water vapor. And that's easy to verify, mm-hmm. right? You can find these products and test them. And when we've done that, we found that the same things we get concerned about in, in cigarettes are there in the secondhand smoke from e-cigarettes. Uh, That's the carcinogens, the toxicants, nicotine, Mm -hmm. heavy metals, the same things we worry about. Sometimes at higher levels, most of the time at unclear levels because these these products aren't labeled as to what's actually in them. So yes, that's that's concerning. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, another thing that people may not be familiar with is the concept of third-hand smoke. The particles that remain on surfaces, Hmm. that's what we call third-hand smoke after someone leaves a room, just like with cigarettes and the third-hand smoke that leaves on on clothes, on desks, on chairs. Same thing for the secondhand smoke, thirdhand smoke that comes from e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. The other thing just to mention about e-cigarettes too is that we've, this is an area that we're concerned about that they, these new products might come into the market and really attract people who wouldn't have been at risk for using traditional tri- uh, tobacco products. That was the concern when they first came out and now we have more data to support that assertion. When we look at more longitudinal studies, we follow up individual users of e-cigarettes one year at follow-up. Mm-hmm. We find they're significantly more likely to use traditional tobacco products than their peers that never used e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So there's a concern there. These things are kind of being used a lot. Um, they're now the number one tobacco product used. There is, there's concerns about the secondhand smoke. Again, not water vapor, secondhand smoke of these products. And these products might, we're doing all these great strides, helping people no longer use tobacco products. We've made great strides over the last 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. These products could kind of lure people back into using tobacco products. And then something that's a potential lifelong addiction to a horrible product that will eventually kill them. 
So that's why it's such important things that we, we're positioned to talk about things that, these things. That I know our Poison Control Center is also always talking about the risk of ingestions mm -hmm. with these e-cigarette, nicotine, whatever you do with them. Yeah, these, what they call <laughs> e-solutions. E right, yeah. that the kids can drink because it looks, uh, you know, sometimes flavorful or uh, colored. So they think it's something that, that's maybe candy or juice or something that they're supposed to eat that they can um, unfortunately ingest unintentionally. Yeah, and what a great point. So the, these companies will say that they're only targeting adults. That's what their claim will be. Mm -hmm. But then especially as pediatricians, you look at it and say, wait a second, all these candy flavorings, they're targeted towards kids to lure them in. And your point is they also, um, to our poison control centers, they have more and more calls for acute nicotine toxicity mm -hmm. because of ingesting these very sweet products that kids will go after. The good news is in the regulatory environment, we're catching up to what was a horribly unregulated space. Mm -hmm. Now we have the FDA has uh, deemed e-cigarettes to be just like tobacco products. They are tobacco products. Mm -hmm. They fall in their same regulatory umbrella. And we have consumer protection in place now, but all of these packages have to have child safe packaging to them right. to help push back against this. Definitely. So what are the next steps after this study that you did? Where do you want to go with this research in the future? The biggest thing is we're trying to continue to refine the tool that we've built to make it easier for our pediatricians to use it. So that's the, the focus on the clinician end. Mm -hmm. And then the other area is making it easier for the parents to connect to resources and engage them further. Is your decision support tool going to pop up at places other than CareBots yeah, in the future? Yes, so kind of watch out. We're going to be doing more research in that space because the um, there's been big people ask that question. And it's not that we're holding it back. We're just trying to make sure we refine it further. Mm -hmm. But I think that's it shows that people care about this. That, wow, can you kind of give us this tool too and access? Mm -hmm. The other thing that's not so much in a research but at a policy level is that um, working with the state in Pennsylvania and, and more in the federal level, uh, there are there's movement for pediatricians to be uh, get reimbursed for providing these services, mm. and I think that's really important because we're talking about all the evidence about why we should be doing this, and we really need payers to put their money where their mouth is and say, okay, you know, we need to be appropriately compensating pediatricians, not because we care about making money, but you know, we're taking the time. We need to be right. appropriately compensated for our efforts, and that's coming through. Mm -hmm. And so, hopefully, within the next couple of years, we'll have more uh, good test cases of that. Right. And like you said, these efforts lead to a lot of downstream effects that would benefit insurance companies mm -hmm. if we improve the health of these families and the children. Yeah. If we get up to higher rates of this and really make a good effort of helping parents quit, there are $300 billion spent each year on tobacco attributable costs. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing that we could go, go after and it fits within our context of helping families and we can have some really good kind of downstream impacts. So. Can you tell us just a little bit about Policy Lab for those who are listening and are unaware of where this research project is coming out from and what Policy Lab does? You men mentioned the intergenerational research, but what else are they doing and what else do you do with Policy Lab? Yeah, Policy Lab, I'm very lucky to be part of this great group that really focuses on two kind of core areas. It's, it's putting research into practice mm -hmm. and it's making sure that we're developing research that can help the policymakers and people who are more focused right in the trenches of what do I do in this particular situation. So we talked about the intergenerational services. That's where we're focused on. How do we better help families and position pediatricians to do that? That's one of our big core efforts. Mm -hmm. There are other efforts there um, uh, that I encourage people to go to the Policy Lab website to learn more about these, these efforts. But we have things that are relevant right now, focusing on how do we better engage parents around vaccines, vaccines for their children and vaccines for themselves, for mm -hmm. example, around pertussis. 
how do we focus on helping disadvantaged populations and immigrant health? Things that are very topical but very important for us to be involved in this space. It's a great group of researchers and, and support group and smart uh, PhDs and people who have a variety of different backgrounds to really make sure that we're doing research that actually helps, at the end of the day, helps people. Mm -hmm. So Policy Lab, it's housed here at CHOP. I encourage people to learn more about it, go to our website and see if there's anything they want to connect with there. Great. And we will link to Policy Lab on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. I'll also a link to your paper, which is the Clinical Decision Support Tool for Parental Tobacco Treatment in Primary Care, which we mentioned was published in Pediatrics in 2016. And thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Jensen. This was great and something that I think everyone will be able to put into practice on a regular basis, hopefully with every patient, but uh, something that we are working to and striving to be better at doing. And this is a great tool that could potentially help us get some real results. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.